Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday, about midday. I'm going to try this week um, to do this uh, early in the week and uh, something unusual today. Today is uh, the second of two uh, talks, two podcasts sponsored by the Radomskis in Israel. Um, very grateful. And again, it's uh, for grandmother's 90th uh, birthday, Kenan Ahara, uh, which is not long the other day. And uh, once again, we hope she'll have a happy birthday and uh, stay safe. Uh, in this environment. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary today, because I can. <clears throat> it's going to sound funny, uh, but uh, the death of Sheldon Adelson made me think of something and uh, in in about the note of Yehuda. So let me get right down to it. I'm following the news like you, and I see the Adelson died, and it's all this big hoopla, uh, properly so, He's the guy, if you follow the news closely and correctly, he's the guy responsible for what Trump has done as far as Israel recognizing Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, which is incredible. Uh, still don't get it. <laughs> Things like this basically due to the guy who dropped $100 million on him, you know, or maybe, maybe twice that much in the two elections. You follow this. Adelson, the guy who died was uh, 30-some billion dollars. Billion, I say. That's a lot of change where I come from. And it's very interesting because he pursued this like a laser. He said, I'm going to give Trump the money, but I expect something in return. And uh, to my mind, that's why, that really is why Donald Trump did this. Uh, I'm not putting down Trump at all for that, the opposite. But it's a mentality. You know, a guy really bankrolled him heavily, tens of millions of dollars for the campaigns. But he did it with, with the intention that, you know, he doesn't need a personal business favor, but he wanted. Uh, the embassy in Jerusalem and all that kind of business. The Iran deal, or whatever. Now, this is unusual, and you'll be surprised to hear this, perhaps, but it made me think about a note of Yehuda, and that is the, the following. There's a famous note of Yehuda, or it should be famous, in Archaim, where he's asked two questions, one of which is very famous and very well-known, and the other question in the same chubas, I would say less well-known. By far. The famous one, the notorious one, is about the Shem Yichud. If you're Hasidic or anything like that whatsoever, who has not heard of this? This is in Orachim, Madura Tanyana, uh, 107. And very briefly, the note of Yehuda was asked, um, this is Masha Shal, Omrim Kodent Filos Asiyah Mitzvah, Yichud. What's the shot with this saying, Shem Yichud? In which the person says, I'm doing this in order to be miyache, to do what they call yichudim, it's a rizal stuff. You bring together things. Yache, kutcha bricho, kutcha bricho shchinte. You want to bring up about a yichud, a uniting of the kutcha bricho and shchinte. These are two parts of God. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what it means. Uh, Kabbalistically, of course. Shem yichud, kutcha bricho shchinte. To bring together the kutcha bricho part and the shchina part 
Yichud Shlim in a complete Yichud, Shem Kol Yisrael, etc., etc., etc. So, Nodavir was asked about this. And then the second thing he's asked is, V'chem Masha Mavur B'Sifri Musar, She'yishlokon al Gos HaShchina. What's this shot? Now, people get up in the middle of the night, they say Tegon Chatzos, and that whole business, for something called the Gos HaShchina. The Shchina is in Gos. L'far Ishmahu HaShchina, V'ech Sha'ach Gos. What's Shach Shchina in Gos? I mean, after all, God's not in Gos, you know. God created everything, including uh, space. And the note of Yehuda says, this is something written rather late in his life, uh, in 1780, when he was, uh, I don't know, uh, around 70 or so. Born in 1713, so what does that mean? The, almost uh, that. Late 60s. And whoever wrote the letter to the note of Yehuda did a lot of speculation in what's the term, the shame Yichud, and also, what does it mean, uh, this business of Golos HaShchina? Which does sound nuts, right? How can the Shechina be in Golos? And notably, he was a classic misnagid. So in the sense, uh, he was a big misnagid to the Hasidic movement. I think everybody knows that. He burned the Hasidic books. And uh, not only the Groh. And in addition to that, he was very opposed, because he lived in the Shabtai Tzvi period and Frankist period, public discussion of Kabbalistic. Uh, matters. And he writes to the person who wrote him the letter, Bamuflam Khal Tidrish. You violated what the what Chazal say, Bamuflam Khal Tidrish. Don't investigate things that are beyond you. That by the way is a Pusik in the book of Ben Sira. Not in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in one of the apocryphal books. But it happens to be one of the apocryphal books, which only survive in the Christian church today, that the Chazal liked, because they for you know a fair number of times and the Gemara, they quote from the book of Mansira. Uh, so basically, he's blowing them off. And he's saying, you shouldn't even ask a shah like that. You have a question about Kashras, Yerodeah, Benezer, Choshemish, but no. But uh, you have a question about, you know, Shem Yichud, or Gos Ashkina. This is not something to ask. V'yamdam Lagalus Bezed, Yefshar. Now, no human knows what it means. But he says, I can't be Magal the whole thing. I'm not going to share with you Kabbalah. But I'll give you some common sense explanations of it. Okay? Now, the first part is very famous. I'll go through it very quickly. What's shot in the meaning of how uniting different parts of God? What does that mean? Why do we even have to explain that to you? You shouldn't even ask that question. In fact, you shouldn't even say. Shalom Matsina Badibri Shne Talmudin Babli Shalmi Sifra Sifri Tosef Dibri Aposkin. It's not in the exoteric sources of Judaism, in the esoteric sources. Don't ask me no question from the Zohar. You know? The answer question, Pachazal, Gemara, Mishnayas, you know, the Michal Tosefra Sifri, Tosefta. That's legitimate territory. Beyond that, what even you shouldn't even read that stuff. And normative Judaism, this is a very famous tshuva, and the Hasidim wrote rejoinders to this. Normative Judaism uh, doesn't know of this. Normative Judaism is based on the Gemara, on, on exoteric sources, right? On uh, Nigla. We follow, he says, you know, Nigla stuff. But yeah, so who even said, who introduced this new custom to say Lashem Yichud? 
Hayom Rishonim, Bedurus Rishonim, Yom Nusur Yom Kaleb. And the old line, your Bobby didn't say this, your Zayda didn't say this, <laughs> like that, and they were firmer than you. So what do you even bother with this stuff? And he said, I discussed this elsewhere in another tube in Yardim, which is even more famous, and so on and so forth. Put that aside. Now let's go to part B. The Gauls of Shechina. Beyondah, Masha Shal Maremis Beyondah Shechina when you ask me the question, what do we mean when we talk about Shechina? And what do we talk about Golsa Shechina? That I can't blow you off. That I can't blow you off. Why? Shechina's in the Gemara. Shechina's in the Torah. That's a, that's a legitimate question. You hear what I'm saying? Something that you find in Nigla sources, it is indeed perfectly legitimate for a person to ask what it means. Okay? Uh, and... Uh, and it, you find in the Gemara in one place anyway, Kanto Gol Shechina. You know, I think it means the Gemara Megill, where it says, Kol Mokom Shenigla, Klai Yisrael, you know, Shechina Nigla Imam, right? Isn't that in the uh, thing? You know, Kol Mokom Shata Motsi Gudiloso, Tamotsi Ambasinuso, somewhere over there in Megill, the Gemara, it, say, it says uh, that Shechina goes in goals. Okay, so if something is in the Agadata in the Gemara, it's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. Now, by the way, maybe we know the answer. Maybe we don't know the answer. You know, there are things in the Gadot or whatever where you're dealing with Dvarma Omdi Mirun Shalom. Okay, fine. So a person can say it's beyond me. But we have a long tradition within Judaism and a perfectly legitimate one of trying to understand partially. There is a, uh, what shall I say, a Maimonidean tradition, for example. And I think everybody knows. Uh, philosophical tradition, there's uh, a Gothic tradition, like the, let's say, for example, I don't know, the morale, that's perfectly legitimate, okay? So I can't blow you off. So, on the other hand, it's heavy stuff. So very interestingly, he says, I'll start off by going to the Mernabuchim, the Rambam, because that's obviously normal in the sense that it's not mystical, and trying to explain the most logical way what these terms mean, because it's a fair question. And indeed, the Rambam says, uh, famously, they put it this way, when he wrote the Mernabuchim, the God for the Perplexed, the first third of it, three, three books, the first third of it, most of it is involved in definition of terms. Because he's trying to make you understand the Rambam is, uh, all these terms, anthropomorphisms that we find in the Bible, what is... Their meaning, obviously, if it says God got angry, God does not get angry, he doesn't have emotion, so what's their shot? If it said God went from this place to that place, for example, I don't know, it says, let me, the uh, God said, let me come down and hear what's happening in Sodom. That doesn't mean God's actually going anywhere because he's not in space, so it's a fair question to ask what it means. Those kind of things, you know, Vayom Rashem Moshe, God doesn't speak with a voice box, so what does it mean? These are all fair questions, and Rambam tries in his philosophical, logical way to explain these terms. And one of them is Shechina, because you find Vayishkon uh, Hashem. I mean, the word Shochein, you find plenty. So what does it mean? So here he quotes from Part 1, Chapter 25 in the Book of God for the Perplexed, right? And uh, I have in front of me, let's see here, the, I have about, I'm into the Mernabuch, among other things, and I have about a dozen translations, I bet you, you know, Hebrew and English, the, the newest, 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 it's from Michael Schwartz, uh, the professor in Israel passed away not that long ago. And uh, I'll read you very briefly what he says. Note who uses an old translation, the Ibn Tibbin. And uh, it's short. What's the meaning of Shachain, the Rambam says? 
Yodua Shemash Muso shall pose out Lachnos. The Shochen means to be chones someplace, to be parked somewhere, to stay in a certain place, to dwell, if you wish. But now, by the way, it's written originally in Arabic, and this is a Hebrew translation. Let's be clear about this. I'm only using Schwartz because of the newest news. It says, for example, Hushochen Be'eloni Mamre, Vahibishkon Yisrael Baratzahu. So uh, when Avram was Shochen Be'eloni Mamre, he means he was staying there, dwelling there. When it says Bishkon Yisrael Baratzahu, the Jewish people were Shochen. We're dwelling there for a time. Do you do my fortune? That's obvious. Hamashmoshalishkon, he shishoma, shamashishoba, mokum kosho, masarosa mokum. Then when you stay in a certain place for a certain period of time, and you're masmin, you're there continually, so that's shochim. Kikasher balchayim, myrich, lishas mamokum. If you have a living thing, like a person, for example, or a group of people, and they're myrich, lishas mamokum, they stay for an extended period of time, however extended it is in a certain place. Whether general or, or, or individual, you know, we say the person is, is there for a while. Okay? Fine. Hapol Hushal, so how do you explain what? That's one shot, staying in a place for a certain time. But that's not the only meaning of Shochein, the Raman goes on to say. Hapol Hushal, not only does it talk about where people or creatures stay for a while, but it can also talk about inanimate uh, objects. Okay? Even though it, it can apply to anything, a natural phenomenon, let us say, for example, uh, that is for a while, a period of time in one certain spot. So, for example, uh, he says about the, the, the clouds, right? Even if it's not in a certain place, but a certain state. Tishkin of Anona, for example, that the Anon is there for a while. It's not a living thing, but nevertheless, it's there for a while. So you have basically two shots. Now let's, let's take this term, which we apply for physical things, either animate or inanimate, the Rambam says, and apply it to God. Meaning, not literally, because that's his whole point. Either the Shechina is for a while in a certain place, or his providence. Anywhere where God's providence, his attention, as you would say in English, is addressed. All those kind of terms. The Ramam concludes, everything I'm reading you is from the Mordechai Bucham, but the Mordechai Huda quotes this whole thing. Anything that comes from this verb, if it applies to Hashem, it means that his Shechina, the light that he created. So let's just assume for a second, there's a thing called a light. So it's a light that he created. So I'm going to use a, a dumb analogy. If I flash my flashlight, you know, on your bedroom, so you say that the flashlight is there for a while. It's shochen there. So the shechina means wherever God, wherever God projects a physical thing of some sort, a perceivable thing called an or. It doesn't have to be the light that we understand, but nonetheless. Or his providence. 
It just depends how it's used. That's all. So, the uh, conclusion of this small chapter, chapter 25, in the Rambam, of course, is that um, we're dealing with uh, two possibilities. When it says, Shechina, it could either mean where God made an or happen. So let's say, for example, God created an or for 10 minutes in Baltimore. You say, well, the Shechina was in Baltimore. If he created an or in Moscow, they say the Shechina was in Moscow. Uh, alternatively, his providence if he directs his attention, because the Rambam, like the medieval philosophers, say, and so if you want to get God's direct attention to intervene uh, supernaturally in your life, for one, person, for one reason or another, then you're talking about, you know, uh, the, 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 this idea of hashkacha. Shine. So that's a very logical and non-literal kind of interpretation. That's what the Rambam says. Having quoted, now by the way, I was wondering what is meaning the or. So I go back to one of the notes from uh, this guy, Professor Schwartz, who was a, this is what he eats and breathes. And in Pack and Perkei, just to read you very quickly, Habitu or Hanigla, or Hanivra, these concepts of or, Mitzayinim Eso or Asher Oso Bore Hoeba Mokon. They refer to an or that God creates in a certain place. Like I said before. Baltimore, Moscow, anywhere else. There's a spatial quality to it. Okay? God is everywhere, all the time. But there's a spatial thing he can do if he wishes, and that's, it creates, or something perceptible. To me, myself, and I, I'm in my house right now, I don't perceive God, not really. I, I see a room. It's invisible, you see? But if we created an or, some kind of thing that was perceptible, then you say, the Shechina was there. Uh, could see it. I mean, nobody could really see it or perceive it. That's a better term of using it. Right? Or is there, Huludvarov Hakori Shechino Kavadashen. So the Rambam understands, and so does Sadigon and, you know, Levi and many others, that that's the meaning of Shechino. Uh, there's a Ramba, Ramban that disagrees, but I won't go into that right now. So, uh, Ramban in, in, in uh, Vayigash. Anyhow, uh, that's what that means. So, Nodim Yudah goes on to say, uh, that's what the Rambam said. And now, I'm going to say a few words. The Nodah Behuda says, this is my understanding of it. So based on this reading that I just quoted from the Mordebuchim, the Nodah Behuda says, I understand that there are two definitions of the word Shechina, or Nivra, or Hashkacha. Right, this light thing, or this hashkacha thing, this providence thing. Pani Oimer, and Nodabi who says, in my opinion, echad. Even though the Rambam refers to them as two separate things, I think they're identical. And now, he does something very funny because he switches to Kabbalah, even though he just said he's not going to do Kabbalah. When we speak about God's providence, it's not something uh, which is not material. But rather, when there is a hashkacha, memela there is that or. So the hashkacha, the divine providence, knows the way God interacts with the world over there is what is what the chazal calls shechina. Now, what does that mean? Because until now, he's using very general and, and broad terms. With you know, you could go anywhere with this. 
Then he says something interesting. The way God operates, what this means is what God operates when he's in a good mood, and when Yisrael, because Klai Yisrael is doing what they're supposed to do, Oz Iker Hashkachosa Yisrael. Then what it means is like this: When God relates to the world, He does through His Iker Hashkacha is through the Jewish people, and they get the direct all the good Shefa that's coming down in the world, uh, health, wealth, power, this, that, and the other, wisdom. But when God pours down. Uh, enough stuff for the whole world. So what it means is we get the uh, the rebush uh, atova. We get the fullness of the uh, of the good stuff, but it overflows. So again, I'll just use a general clog. Suppose God says like this: I'm gonna give a certain amount of prosperity, wealth. So when Bisman shows him Ritzon Shal Makom, so it sounds like this. I, I'm giving out $20 trillion worth of wealth this year, or whatever. I'm just trying to make it up to give you an idea. $20 trillion. Doesn't matter what economic forces will bring it about, but this is what Hashem wants. So, first I'm going to give the $20 trillion to Claudius Yisrael. Uh, what does that mean? They'll get the full uh, shefa of the Parnassah, but that's more than the Jewish people need. And, therefore... They'll get the, the acre of it, and whatever's left over, like a, a pouring a, a you know coffee into a cup, but a lot of coffee, it'll spill over. So the spillover goes to the Goyim. Now none of this is literal, but he's trying to say like this: the ichor tov goes to the Jews, and the leftover goes to the Goyim. Okay, el shamachmas riba tova magir and he quotes some pasuk to back it up. Okay. Uh, so when when that is happening, we refer to it inaccurately, but you know, uh, kabbalistically, we say that that means the shechina is sure in Israel. The shechina or the divine providence is resting in Israel, meaning we get the the the, the fullness of the goodies, and they get the leftovers. That's only when the Jewish people are doing the right way. Torah misses. But when we sin a lot, then we get into Golis, meaning a physical Golis, we get kicked out of Israel. But it also means a mystical Golis. So not only are we leaving, leaving the physical land called Israel, but we also leave what we just described, the situation where we get all the goodies up front. So, in twofold sense, we get uh, kicked out of Israel, that's a physical manifestation, and the spiritual manifestation is that when God dumps 20 trillion or anything good on the world, the Goyim get it first, and we get the leftovers. All the goodies go to the Goyim. And we get whatever's left over that they choose to share out with us, you know, sparingly. And that's why the Goyim have all the good stuff and we don't. That's 
an old-fashioned, very uh, Kabbalistic, Arizal type way. It's funny, he says he's not going to do Kabbal, but then, of course, he did Kabbal. It's funny to me because uh, around the same time, the Beyonce uh, Amshitz and then Garrus Devash, in a very famous um, sermon, the very first one in the book, which is where he uh, explicates the Shemun Esrei. I'm sure many of you have heard of this, and I think nowadays it's fashionable for rabbis to give uh, classes on this. Uh, in the Yonas uh, uh, uh paragraph by paragraph explication of the Shemun Esrei. It's very interesting, actually. It's it's his unique style, not what you ordinarily think, but that's what makes it interesting. So in there, now he has no trouble talking Kabbalah in public. Um, when you get to La Malshinim, he's a longer riches, and in there he says, among other things, the same thing. That the way God poured his good stuff, the trillions, was through with, with Eretz Yisrael and the base of Migdash being the, the cup. And the other nations got with the leftovers, which is uh, not a lot. Uh, but when the Churban came, then God instead dumps all the goodies on the Goyim as he puts it on the angel where the Jews are located. And therefore, that Sar, which is the Sar of the Goyim, and therefore they get all the good stuff. But who must be alone? And then, through that Sar, the Jews get what they get. So the Goyim get all the goodies and all the good stuff, and we get just the leftovers. And from that Sar, he, of course, he speaks more mystically. He has no trouble doing that. Um, and that's how it always works when the Jews and Goals. That's why we are persecuted, we're usually uh, economically deprived, we're, uh, perse- uh, what do you call it, discriminated against, there are laws against us, etc., etc., etc. Okay? And this last Golis, the Golis Adam, now remember, he lived in Germany in the 1700s, in the ghettos, so things were, were tough. Actually, he wasn't in a ghetto, but in, in places where there were a lot of anti-Jewish laws. Golis God gives the main stuff to the Germans, what we're in. And then we get the leftovers, what they give us. Right? As is known very much in the writings of the Talmud Ari. So it's funny, nobody who would do that. That's a separate schmooze. Now, what has this got to do with Shalom Adelson? Very briefly like this. This is just a thought that occurred to me. First of all, it's an interesting chew. You know, I hope you'll appreciate this. Uh, there's other ways of explaining Gol Zashkina, but it's a classic way from the uh, mystical perspective. So it doesn't mean the, the Shkina is actually in exile somewhere. It, it rather is uh, uh, describes a certain mode of relation between God on the one hand and Jewish people on the other. That's how they interpret it. It's not literal at all. Okay, now, uh, what does this boil down to? I'll tell you what I think. That's all I can ever do especially in this day and age. You will say, uh, listen, maybe in the time of Abishutz or something, uh, there were persecutions of the Jews, there was um, the, uh, poverty, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. And there certainly was. What about nowadays? What about in the 20th century? Or post-war? 
Jews are actually fairly prosperous. In some places, they're very prosperous. Usually, they're more prosperous than others. How do you explain that? Plenty of Jewish billionaires, shmillionaires running around. So, the answer is, I understand it, goes as follows. Here's the, here is, to my mind, the modern manifestation of the Gol Sashina. Because it said, whatever we get goes to the guy and we get the leftovers. You got all these loaded guys, billionaires, running around. And they don't give nothing for Jewish causes, and certainly not for anything from. Okay? It is pop. Everybody's going crazy. I don't know where you live, but where I live, everybody's going crazy with their tuitions. Right? The chinuch and everything like that is not properly funded. And people drive themselves crazy. It's a big strain on marriages. It is. People have less children. It is what it is. And this is, I think, very widespread. I know there are a couple of states out there where they cut deals with the states and it's different. But usually, most normal places, it's terrible. Okay? Here, Israel and elsewhere. There is plenty of money out there. It is 100% possible that all day school education, all yeshiva education ever could be free. Because these guys could drop it, a billion here, a half billion, a hundred million here, and wouldn't hurt them. Take, for example, Shel Nadelson. He was a relatively good guy. As I understand it. By the way, I'm not 100% sure he was Jewish. I know it sounds funny to say so. I just Google a little bit over here. I hope I misunderstood. It seems to me his mother was not Jewish, but I I guess I must be wrong about that. They said the father was from Lithuania, the mother's from Wales, and his grandfather was a, a Welsh miner. I don't know if he meant that for real. It would be very funny if they just buried him in Harazason, which they did. Then it turns out, you know, <laughs> is he Jewish? But let's put that aside for a second. He certainly identifies as you. Uh, here this out. Although his son-in-law is not Jewish. He says, let, let, here this out. Here's a guy who makes zillions, or 33 billion, and um, for happened to be, at least based on what I read, happened to be, and he's one of these guys that never visited Israel until his 50s, and then he fell in love with Israel. I myself had a neighbor two, three doors away, very nice couple, older couple, not from, we used to be good, very good uh, uh, friends with them, and uh, older couple, nice people, uh, they didn't know much about Judaism, you know, Jewish people, and they belonged to the Hop Johns Hopkins uh, Travel Club. And Johns Hopkins Travel Club used to go all over the world, you know, that's what they did, they were older, their kids were uh, married off, etc., they were alone, home alone, and they went to, you know, all these fancy schmancy Hopkins tours. I remember they went to Mongolia, and to Asia, and Africa, and this and that and the other, naturally to Europe, everywhere. I used to say to them, you ever been in Israel? Nah, you know, that type of person, a lot of people, even today, they're afraid to go to Israel. A lot of American Jews and others, they think Israel's bombs everywhere. Uh, I know it's not, but I'm telling you what the way they think. Right? think it's not dangerous. Plus, they are very uncomfortable with their Jewish identity in, deep down. Uh, there's a lot to talk about on that, but, you know, good people, but they're not comfortable with their Jewish identity. And so... I used to tell them, not that I'm such a frummy or anything like that, I said, you know, you ought to go to Israel and the Middle East. So they went to uh, Morocco with the Johns Hopkins and so on and so forth, but they never did. Okay, fine. This was a topic of conversation. I said, David, I don't know. Finally, by Hibayon, Hopkins finally organized a tour of the Middle East in which 95% of it was the Arabs and 5% was Israel. <laughs> Kedarkum. You know, they spent so and so much time, just about 20 years ago, actually, Maybe 30 years ago. That might be more accurate. 
And, uh, you know, they spent time in Jordan, place in uh, Egypt, you know what I'm saying. And when they went to Israel, they spent a lot of time by the Arabs in East Jerusalem and so forth in the West Bank. Okay, fine. But they also spent a certain amount of time in Israel, the Jewish Israel. Oh, my goodness. They came back flying. <laughs> wow, they saw Israel, Jewish state. David, you got to see Israel. <laughs> and all this stuff. It was funny. You know what I'm saying? They discovered, and it was beyond their house Now, you tell me like this. How can two intelligent people not know what's going on in Israel? It can happen. So, if I read correctly, it seems that Adelson never visited Israel. And then in 1988, he was 55 or whatever, he went to Israel and fell in love with Israel. Like typical, similarly, Jew fell in love with Israel. Obviously, had a Jewish uh, heart. Ever since then, oh my goodness, he moved heaven and earth. And he also made, dig. if I understand the business correctly, which I probably don't, he made his Iker billions like in his old age. You know, with the casinos and all that. The I forgot to consult with Ira Friedman. He would give me the whole uh, rundown, business rundown. But anyhow, so uh, he really got in with Israel. But when I say got in with Israel, not only did he fund the birthright and all this kind of stuff, uh, but, and by the way, he gave to a lot of Gaisha causes too, uh, but he got political. And, you know, I remember reading he quit APAC because they weren't Zionist enough. Get it? The APAC has already got to play both sides of the aisle in the Congress to have to be in favor of a two-state solution and so on and so forth. He said, the heck with that. We end up joining the ZOA now um, and bankrolling that. Now, being the very direct kind of businessman, he started uh, bankrolling the Republicans in tens of millions because he figured they're more pro-Israel. I remember he's the one who put, uh, what's his name in there, Romney, back in 2012. And then, somehow or other, somebody made a shake with him and Trump. By that time, he's pretty uh, strong idea what he wanted to do. He was a political Zionist, and basically he said to Trump, it's pretty clear. He said to Trump, I'm willing to support you, all well, the rest of it, uh, but I'm supporting you because you're pro-Israel, and because I know you're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, and I know you're going to this, that, and the other. And Donald Trump, you know, looking at a guy who's dropping $100 million on him, said, absolutely. Plus, to be fair about it, Trump's about to leave, and he's dumping on him, all the rest of it, and he certainly has his idiotic stuff, no question about it. A strange guy. But he I know that he always had a good heart, Lagabi Israel. Because I have, uh, I spoke about it in my lectures. I've seen clips of him from long ago. You understand? From long ago, before he was in president business. He was very pro-Israel then. And so the shit was made. I wouldn't say that it would ever imagine that Donald Trump to recognize the Golan Heights as part of Israel. That's incredible. If you know anything about international law, to admit that Israel was acquired this piece of land by conquest, which is uh, a big Avera, and it's totally opposed to the United Nations rules, etc., 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 that Trump just said, we recognize Israel as part of, uh, Golan Heights part of Israel. Now, I can make the case for that, but, you know, I'm sure the State Department had a heart attack, okay? The liberals had a heart attack, because you can't do that. Uh, by the way, what is the argument that Israel should keep the Golan Heights? Do you know what the argument is? The Arabs were planning before 67 to cut off the water. Israel depends uh, on the Canaret, and, and then the Canaret goes to the Jordan River. That's where they get a lot of their water. The origins of the Canaret are north of the Canaret, in these little rivers, the Yarmouk and the other things. That's where Mamish starts. So I remember in 64 and 65, before the 76-day war, the Syrians said they want to 
reroute the water or something like that. And Israel bombed their tractors. You can look it up if you're interested in the details. They might as well want to cut the water off of Israel. Think about that. Uh, today, it's really funny because today, Egypt is exactly a situation. If you follow the news, Egypt depends on the Nile. Egypt has a lot more people than ever, like 100 million, because they have a baby boom that they can't stop. Uh, that means you have a lot of uh, mouths to feed. It depends totally on the Nile. The Nile doesn't start in Egypt. The Nile goes all the way south uh, into Black Africa, into Kenya and Ethiopia, I think, or Uganda over there. And those countries are now saying they need the water. They want a lot more of it. And Egypt is freaking out. And you might, my friends, have a war uh, in the not-too-distant future in which the Egyptians will try to invade. I don't know how they'll do it. Uh, invade uh, these black African countries like Ethiopia and uh, Uganda and Kenya, which are south of uh, Sudan. Uh, you, you know the map. And uh, so they'd have to project power far away. But they'll say like this, we have no choice. We can't all die. You know, say, Chayecha Kodma, I mean, you, you can't die from starvation, from no, from thirst. So Israel's the same thing. Syria said, we want the land back. Then Syria will cut off the water. You understand? The way, what's the plan on that? How's the world going to stop that? Suppose the Iranians, the Hezbollah, this kind of junk take over to Syria, which is always an immediate possibility. All they have to do is cut off the water. So this is the Golan Heights that Israel occupies. But that's me. I'm making a pro-Israel statement. You know, someone else would not do like that. So, Shell Nails is just interesting that he had a, a focus like a laser on this. To my mind, that's much more significant, much more shocking uh, that Trump would do that than uh, move the embassy, which at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. It's very nice. It's very nice. It sends a good message. But the Golan Heights is much more significant. I don't know what, what Biden's going to do. In my mind, that's going to be the big trick. You understand? Know we're going to see what happens uh, coming up soon with the new administration this week. Legabi the Golan Heights. Keep your eyes focused on that if you if you wish so. Now, um, what's my point? Here's one billionaire. He ain't the only one. There are plenty of Jewish billionaires. I said billionaires. And he happened to conceive a violent Zionist uh, passion. Uh, okay? And he was willing to use his money uh, and to tell you the truth, I know it's going to sound funny what I'm saying. You got 33 billion, 100 million here, 100 million there is chump change. <laughs> right? It's plain more where that came from. Uh, 33 billion, billion. So drop 100 million here, drop 100 million there, and, and this can grace his ah. That he was willing to do it, and uh, very successfully, like a real big businessman, to get what he wanted, which was to get a president in there and a president who would do what he asked, and he did do so. Okay. Now, what do I mean? I just described something that's highly exceptional. The guy was considered eccentric. Shel Nielsen was considered a weirdo. This old guy with the with the painted hair in Las Vegas, you know, strange guy with that funny wife, and so on and so forth. And his personal thing was Israel and the, and the, the Iran deal and the, the, those, those Zionist matters. Okay? What about all the other Shel Nielsen's out there? The answer is you've got people that are loaded, loaded to the gills. Uh, I, I forgot the birthright. He's also a big uh, guy uh, with the birthright. Which, you know, from a non-from point of view, that's the best you can do, correct? I mean, from a non-from perspective, what's the best way of going to get Jews to meet their, you know, Judaism? It's sad what I'm saying. You know, but you ain't all getting them to go to Hesha Torah, right? So what are you going to do? 
Then you go to Israel, you see the reality of Jewish state. Maybe it triggers something. I always tell this story. Maybe I told it here. One time, me, myself, and I, I led a, a shul trip to Israel. I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. And the way back, um, we were flying back. And on the plane back was also a bunch of this birthright uh, type students. And my wife, Karen, she was talking with them. And, you know, she was talking with them. Nice kids, and they were from Stony Brook. Uh, totally no knowledge of Judaism. This is their first knowledge of Judaism going to Israel. And we asked them, how'd you like it? Oh, it was great. What'd you do? We hit every bar in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Haifa. Did you see the, the Kotel? Yeah, we did that too. <laughs> that's that's how it goes nowadays. And my wife says to the guy, I would never ask this. My wife says to the guy, has this changed your Judaism in any way? Something like that. And the guy says, this is how it it was a nice fellow, too. A nice fellow, a student. He said, this had a profound impact on my attitude towards Jewish. How so? i got to tell you something. As a result of this trip and seeing exposed to my Jewish uh, heritage, for the first time, I'm going to give serious thought to possibly dating a Jewish girl. <laughs> you know? He didn't say he'd marry a Jewish girl. It wasn't even a havamina that he would date a Jewish girl. That's how far things are going. And I'm talking about 15 years ago. Today is probably worse. So, this is the world in which we live. Now, um, this guy, Shel Nielsen, happened to, as a Yachid, as a to feel this way. What about all those billions and zillions and shmillions out there? They don't give nothing to Jewish. When I say Jewish, nothing to, either to Israel or to some, or Chinuch. Right? Or Chinuch. Now, Shel Nielsen did not give to Chinuch. It's a, it's a tragedy. This I call the Gauls of Shinuch. Because what does that mean? What did we just describe? That when God pours out the uh, goodies, gives the money and the other shefa, the main goes to the goyim. The Jews get the, the, the crumbs. That's mom's what he said. The tamsas. Jews get the crumbs. If you know anything, in our goal is today, plenty of Jews have money, but big money, I'm talking about serious money, and they're not at all interested or inspired to give anything Jewish. By that I mean either to Torah education on, on the one hand, or at least to the state of Israel on the other, you know, to help Israel's security. They're not interested in that. It's amazing. They give for every Mishagas, they give for every non-Jewish uh, um, cause, they won't give anything serious for the Jewish. Now, even Adelson, if you think about it, this is a tragedy. A guy like that, with 30-some billion, he could have left my, he could have done this years ago. He said, you know something? I'm putting in one billion for Chinuch in, in, in North America. In there, a billion, and to be perfectly honest, you put two or three billion in this, the dividends should go support this. That will cut everybody's tuition, maybe wipe it out. If the schools won't be jerks and do what a lot of our schools unfortunately do, which is they pocket the money and then charge you anyway. But if it was done right, <laughs> let's put it that way, if it was done right, then every school will get paid up front from this fund, every legitimate uh, day school, let's say, for example. Then we have to pay money. This would make a revolution. In families, it would bring a lot of people more to, to day schools, to the Torah institutions, whatever. In, in other words, dream your own dream, fashion any way you want, your own fantasy. You see what I'm saying, right? And my point is like this. I'm not saying anything crazy. The money is there. And these guys have money to burn. Your guys have money to burn. They have disposable hundreds of millions of dollars and some billions of dollars. But it won't happen, will it? And why won't it happen? Here we are. Uh, in a time of extraordinary prosperity for many, and they have uh, money coming out of their ears, 
And they do give significant amounts of money, sometimes fortunes, to other causes, though they won't give anything to a cause that really counts, that we really need it, to Chinuch. It's incredible. I'll say it again. A guy like Adelson or many others, they could easily sell this. We'll drop a billion for Chinuch, and that way any parent who wants to can send their children and uh, like free or Kimat free or something like that. That'd be a, a game changer. You understand? If he had a little more enlightenment, he says that he can also do for yeshivas. You, you see what I'm saying. Here, Israel, all the rest of it. And life could be uh, so much better. Uh, but it won't happen. Now, why won't it happen? That's the goal session. That's the note he's talking about. Is a guy that so organized the world that the Jews who have the money have a, um, what's the right word? A screw loose. They have a, a blindness to what I'm talking about. They have a blindness to what I'm talking about. They will give money, like I said, for many other causes, but not for the one that's there. I remember many years ago, at least 20 years ago, maybe more, when I was working for the art school, we once had, um, they used to go once a year, twice, uh, two times, once a year more or less, they used to have a big art school banquet in New York. And I went up with my wife, and uh, uh, I don't forget who they honored, but whatever. The point is it was in fancy in the Hilton Hotel and so forth. And uh, whew, uh, they put us at a table, the, the writers, but the head table was uh, the big givers. And at the uh, um, when they gave the speeches, so they introduced each of the big givers. And what's funny to me was uh, that you see the art scroll got through to some of these top names that never have anything with the Yiddish guide. And they were introducing... Here's Sally and Bill. They pay for this hospital in Louisiana. Here's Joe and Mary. They are the ones who pay for the symphony in North Carolina. I'm serious. This, in other words, they gave fortunes away for all kind of worthy, nice causes and dropped a little bit on the art scroll. Right? And only because Schottenstein got involved and he got Tish in there and, you know, became a little bit of a millionaire zach. I repeat, a little bit. Nowhere near what it could have been. And um, it was a real manifestation of Gol Sashina. So... I think it's one of the remarkable, uh, uh, not ironies, not to worry, but but uh, anomalies of our time. It was, the money is there, the money is there big time. And there are plenty of Jews, big time, that could easily transform Jewish life. But what's holding them back is a mindset. And that mindset, is, to my mind, is the modern manifestation of the Gal Sashkino. And so when I saw Shal Nielsen died, and look how much he did for Israel, it's exception that proves the rule. Right? Because of all the other millionaires we get in there, they could dominate or, let's put it this way, have heavy influence on Biden administration, but they will not. Okay, If they wanted to, they could transform I mean, amazingly. Right? Imagine if our schools, our yeshivas, our day schools, the Beis and all the rest of it had huge budgets to play with and didn't steal them and use them for improving the chinuch's we, we, we could have a different uh, world. We could have a different world. You see? I'm talking about for Torah, for everything. A different world. But even though they're there, it won't happen. So, uh, uh, we see that what the Arizal is talking about, uh, which he described in very mystical kind of terms, to my mind, you see this totally manifested in our day and age. And Shell Nielsen is, like I say, an exception that proves the rule. He was a zillionaire 
who got really passionate about something and he got done what he wanted to do. Right? Uh, I'm sure, I'm sorry to say, he's going to leave behind a lot of money for different charities. Uh, and he gave a little to Chabad here and there. And, you know, I mean, he gave a little bit, you know, thousands. But the serious money is going for who knows what. And I've said it many times. History shows that we have these very rich families within five generations and maybe four. They're not Jewish anymore. And as I was thinking about saying this this morning, I was sitting in front of a computer looking online, and it just caught my attention. Uh, Benjamin the Rothschild died. Who's he? I don't know. But just to test my hypothesis. So I Googled him and his wife. And Benjamin Rothschild is, you know, the, the latest Rothschild. Apparently he died at the age of 57, uh, uh, suddenly. And his wife is Ariane Rothschild. And like I said, I just did a little bit of Google because I was interested in this podcast. She's not Jewish. She declined to convert. She's very proud of it. And so, fine. He left four daughters behind. Uh, I don't even know if he's Jewish, but let's assume he is. Not anymore. All that money's not by Jews anymore because his kids aren't Jewish. And his wife is very proud of that. She said, I didn't want to convert to Judaism because I don't believe in it. It'd be worse to tell a lie. She's not exactly wrong about that. So here you see the Rothschilds being the poster boys for all these millionaires and culinaries that they're Jewish, they amass a vast fortune, but they're living in the Gauls of up and by the time it's over, the guy and get the money. You understand? The Jews get the Thompsons. They get a few thousand here, a few thousand there. They get the money. I think this is one of the most striking, to my mind, one of the most striking manifestations of our time, and those who say there's no more Gauls because the state of Israel is here and all the rest, I mean, nobody even talks like that anymore. Uh, we're, ba- we're barely hanging on, as we all know. We dominate every day. Israel should hang on by its fingernails uh, with, the, with the Iran and with the Hezbollah and all the other things, uh, as we know. And now Trump's gone, and you know, who knows what's going to be. But even besides that, even besides that, the, the profound Gulf of the Gulf of Shechina is uh, one of the most uh, pronounced trends of our time. Anyway, it's a little bit different, but that's a, a point I wanted to get across today. And with that, I wish you a, a good week. And I once again thank the Radomskis uh, for their um, uh, generous uh, sponsorship. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.